Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
Gag. Gag. Now listen to the younger woman. Gag. Gag. Oh. Tag. Tag. Did you hear the tag versus tag? Mm -hmm. Right? And so this is, we call this raising. The vowel is raised, like the tongue raises in the mouth when you say it. Um, so this is um, an A or G. This is happening uh, also in Minnesota. This is happening in other places. It, it seems to be uh, kind of, it, well, it, it's more prevalent on the prairie. So it, it's more so than even in Ontario. In Ontario, they'll say ban. Uh, so before an N, they'll raise it. And they'll say like ban instead of ban. Um, but here in the prairies, we say big and big. And also it, it goes with egg too. So when I came out here uh, and heard egg, everyone says egg. Especially young people say egg instead of egg. And so all these vowels are moving higher and higher. And so what happens is that the, this A moves up. And so then it takes over the place of the A as the A has to move up. And the A takes the place of the A and then it keeps on moving around. And that's what happened in the Great Vowel Shift as well, hundreds of years ago. So it's happening again. This is called the Canadian Shift. There's also a Northern City Vowel Shift. There's a Southern Shift. So all across North America, there are different shifts going on. And this is the Canadian one. Oh, sorry. Uh, this, this is... Part, this isn't quite part of, the, part of it. This is uh, I'm going to talk about the vowel shift, the a thing. So um, the Canadian vowel shift specifically is going the other way around. Sorry, the a before g is going up. So the ones before g are going up. The ones that are not before g are going down. And so when I hear this all the time with my students, if they say something like like bed uh, or like um, pit is more like pet and pet is more like pat. And, and so it keeps on going down the other way around. So this is a becoming a, a becoming a, and a becoming a. And I'll just have a couple of examples here. So I have an 85-year-old male. This one's a little harder to hear, I think, um, with the word test. And I say it correctly. Test. And so does he. Test. But there's a 30-year-old. Test. Test. It's almost like TAST, right? T-A-S-T almost. And so that's what's, the, this is called the vowel shift. And so this is happening with younger people. So this is a change in progress. So these are just a couple examples of what we hear. Because um, what I study is phonetics. And I study the sounds, uh, sound changes, as opposed to other grammatical things. So these are things that you don't realize you're doing, right? As a, as a young person, you have no, this is really uh, un under the level of consciousness. Right? So you don't really know what's going on. So those are the things that I found most interesting, people that, that don't even notice them. Okay. Now there's a couple um, differences based on gender I wanted to mention too. Uh, one of them is this ing. So I think what's, um, the way we say ing, and then we spent another two weeks there traveling around. It's just your regular ing, right? And then in. And like, I was just like booking it. Right. So there you're not pronouncing G, right? That's like a G dropped form, in. Now there's this other one that is com that sounds like in instead of in, and this is quite common around here too. And so I have a student who has been working on this. I know this last year when I was teaching, I had a math 31 class. It's teaching instead of teaching. So the, it's not the ing. It's they're both basically G drop forms. So one is in and one's in. Okay, and I think generally when you say in, that in form seems kind of male. It seems kind of lower class. It's, you know, there's these different things. Uh, it's much more casual, right? Ing is more formal, and that's what we call the non-standard form. In is a lot less formal. Now, um, what's interesting here is that uh, women use in and men use in, and this is like so strongly you can see 
the difference between the female and the male. So the male are in green and the female are in red. And this is the in form here, and that's in form on the other side. And so when we look at it, there's like six. When people are not saying ing, 70% of the time, men are saying in, and women are saying in. And it's, it's a sort of different different way of saying it. You're not saying ing in any of those cases, but men and women are doing this differently. Okay? And it's also mostly middle age and older women saying in. So younger women are not doing this anymore. So they're they're dropping this form. So when you hear that in, it sort of makes you feel, think of an older or middle age, I guess, the women. And the last thing I wanted to talk about quick, quickly is uh, some language differences based on religion, especially in southern Alberta, um, where there's a lot of different religious groups. Um, different religi different religi people from different religions share an immigration history. Uh, they potentially share the same geography. Um, also, active members of a church or, um, or religion often have very tight social networks, and so that reinforces things. These social networks can actually work as a conservative force, um, so avoiding all changes. Right, so they, they're resisting pressure from other changes. So these Canadian shifts and things like that may not happen as quickly in in, uh, in groups that have a very tight uh, social networks. Um, and so I looked at uh, looking at LDS versus non-LDS towns. Uh, you don't really need to look at all these details here, but basically the towns we all know that are LDS towns that are 75% or 75% uh, LDS members versus other towns like Vulcan, Rockyford. Um, uh, Brooks, things like that that don't have very high LDS towns. So I did a comparison of um, this ag thing, right? And if you listen, so back to that same woman from Balkan. Big. So this is the young woman from Balkan. Big. Changing languages. And here's the 19-year-old LDS from, woman from Raymond. Bag. Bag. And you hear that big difference between, this is the, the changing form. Big. Bag. This is the conservative form. So it's totally different between the two, and this is really based on these social networks and things like this, right? Um, same thing with Canadian raising. So Canadian raising is that thing that everyone makes fun of Canadians for saying oop and oop instead of out and about. And this is the same thing if we have, these are older women, because this is, all, all Canadians do this, actually. Um, so we have uh, our non-LDS. Shout. And shout. Shout. And then our LDS, you know? Shout. Hmm. Shout. Right? See, it's shout. It's a shout. And it's the same thing with fight. 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 I heard some people whisper, that's American. And this woman was born and raised um, in, in Canada. So she's never lived in the U.S. But there's definitely, it does sound like that to us, right? And so what's not clear is if it, it really is, uh, it, is it an American accent, or is it just that they're not doing the Canadian thing, right? Because this is a Canadianism, okay? Um, anyway, so I think that's all I really have to, to talk about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the Oh, yeah, go ahead. Thank you very much. Hello, hello. Anyhow, it's your turn. Anyhow. Uh, he turned it off. The, uh, he actually turned it off. Please, uh, those who have questions, line up behind Penny. Uh, the question should be short. If you have more than one question, would you please come back when all the questioners are finished? So, just one question, 
and make introduction or whatever you want to say in the beginning as short as possible. If it's becoming a speech, I'll cut you off. So those who have questions, please come up and uh, speak into the microphone. Mention your name first and repeat your question. Thank you. Hi. Anning Mungles, my name is Susan. Yeah. It, my question relates a bit to what uh, you're talking about there, but in the context of population size and language development in the diaspora away from the home country where that language is the norm. I know you're speaking in English. My background is German. And we are uh, from a diaspora uh, back long ago in the Baltics that came via Germany to Canada in 51. And by the way, just because of your name, I have to say this. Um, the father of Nicole, uh, Nicole von Rosen came on the same ship with me in 51. Really? Yes. <laughs> she lives in the, in the Kootenays, uh, no, in the uh, Caribou in BC. Anyway, so, my, so one thing that we've grappled with a lot is it, it seems like um, when this diaspora is smaller, it tends to be very conservative in maintaining the language of whenever the separation took place versus when the diaspora gets bigger, it develops its own pathway. Maybe Quebec French would be an example. It's not the original French but it's developed. I wonder if there's some studies done sort of on how big this diaspora has to be before it really develops it's almost like a separate language or dialect at least. Um, no, I mean, those are all um, um, valid points, I mean, observant points. Um, that's, I mean, really when you look at it, we are actually also, the, even Anglophones are a diaspora, right? We came from England and, and the, the parts of the language here or from Australia or from New Zealand, all, the fact that all these areas speak differently is reflective of the fact that they broke off from the mother country dif at different point in time. And so that's why we have all these different dialects. And it's the same thing, and um, with, with, I, I, don't, I haven't studied the diaspora in German myself, but I know that's the same thing about that with that and in, and in, um, uh, in French as well, for that matter. There are all sorts of features that get maintained in these new forms. Um, like Quebec French, there's lots and lots of things that get maintained in, in Quebec French that used to be spoken in 1700s in France, but they're not spoken like that anymore. And so it really goes that, that gets, gets back to that isolation. So isolation can be economic, it can be geographical, it can be um, uh, all sorts of different, uh, it can be social. If you're on an island, if you live up on the top of a mountain, if you don't get to talk with everybody else as often, you maintain, like, you either you maintain the language, and then you might also change slightly, but you don't have that constant influx of new people coming in and changing it in the way that you would. So, I mean, I don't know if I could say, speak to exactly how big something has to be <clears throat> um, for it to get maintained, but I think probably, for example, Quebec, they maintain a number of their features, but they've also innovated in a lot of new features because they've got, um, you know, politics behind them. They've got they've got a, a, enough enough people behind them. So I think German outside of Germany is a lot more difficult because there's there's a lot less to support it. I guess. My name is Van Christu. 
Thank you for a, uh, a very enlightening uh, presentation today. Um, I'm in the same boat as Tad over here who mentioned that uh, it's difficult to, uh, when you, when you uh, come with English being your second language and have learned all the basic rules from the beginning, it's very difficult to accept a change uh, easily. <laughs> and uh, I'm wondering though, uh, when I think of uh, the history of the stratification of society in Europe, and which led to a lot of people leaving Europe to come here and other parts of the world as well, um, that uh, language is, is one of the great stratifiers on society. Uh, that there were different levels of, of English uh, from, from the real uh, uh, high level uh, English down, down to the, the uh, people in, uh, in London uh, slums. Um, do you see, my question is, do you see a resistance to change as, as uh, okaying the stratification of society, or to put it the other way, is the stratification of society uh, 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 eroded by our accepting more rapid change in language? That's a good question. I think if you look, for example, in the United States versus England, um, I think there's a lot more acceptance of different dialects in the United States, for example, to a certain point, <laughs> uh, than there is in England. I mean, in England, you really have to speak the pro proper way in order to get the right job. Um, uh, but there's still always going to be that resistance, I guess. Uh, I guess people, because I think what's important is that people be aware of it, and get people aware of where it's coming from. And... Um, I think how I can better answer your question. I think language is a stratifier. Well, I think language reflects the stratification. I don't actually think language is the thing that does it. I think I think stratification help happens elsewhere, and then it gets reflected in the language. And so, if we can, um, but 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 it reinforces that stratification, right? So I think that if we can teach young people, or teach people, I and mean, we can teach grammar in schools very differently than we do or don't now, um, right? You can teach people that it's important just to learn how to style shift. They're actually, I, I had a little video uh, anyway, but there's a little, they're doing this in, in LA where they actually take um, uh, like African-American language and uh, they have students translating it into mainstream English so that they can see that what their language is is okay It's it's the way they speak at home, but it's not the way they speak if they want to succeed in society Right, so I think there's ways of doing this where you teach kind of like what you would teach almost like a second language not quite but close um, I think there's ways of doing that to enlighten people and then maybe we can hope that Language will not continue to reinforce the stratification that's Hello, I'm Mary Shillington. Thanks for sharing your expertise and with people too. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm a first-generation uh, Canadian in my family. My, my sisters and I are. And uh, my forebears came from the United Kingdom. Uh, so the language that I was encouraged to speak was, you know, kind of British. Although my father's was Scottish. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I, I guess I have a, my question and concern is we have uh, several young uh, adult grandchildren who are great on texting, and I'm wondering what the what you see the impact on our language will be with the texting kind of influence. 
Okay, so that's that's a really common concern, of course, because texting is taken over. I think, I mean, all sorts of social things set aside, because <laughs> I mean, I think there's, there's real sort of other issues. I think that what's happening with texting is that we've added a medium, we've added a register. I don't think that's going to take away a register. I think um, people know how to, how most people know how to navigate uh, quite well. And so it's, there have been studies showing that uh, young people who text a lot know that they don't write like that in an essay, right? You write an essay in a different way. Now, not everyone knows this, but that is generally because of, of educational things uh, as opposed to um, just not knowing. Like what I was saying before about lower socioeconomic status, meaning that you don't have access to all the different types of uh, varieties of speech. So I don't actually think, I think texting will add, but I don't think it's going to take away, I guess, is the way I see it. Uh, it's not going to replace communication. It replaces one aspect of it, but not not all of it. And, and it doesn't replace. It certainly doesn't replace um, presentations. It's speak. It's talking in a job interview. Things like that. You know, or it doesn't have to anyway. Hi. Great speech. A very good, good presentation. I have a. a my name is Joseph Natuk. And I'm uh, one of those that didn't know a word of English when I was, before I went to grade school. Mm -hmm. I was about eight years old. And I was taught all these uh, very, very specific English uh, things. You know, remember, like regards? There's no such word as regards other than the scientists. For example, and this, right. et cetera, doesn't mean anything to me because this means whatever. They're to be totally different. So. Anyway, what I'm, what I'm really concerned about, it, well, not concerned, but I'd like your opinion on, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen to people like us? Uh, obviously, we're going to pass on sooner or later, but probably sooner. But at the end of the day, I think, I think the English language, I think it's, it's, it's a great language, it's very challenging, and a challenge learning it. But at the end of the day, this, uh, you know, this, I, the B word for, the language is, is to me is not accepted. I, I have a problem with that. It's some slang for music and all that sort of stuff. And and especially when you get into professional jobs and this sort of thing for the future generation. So what should I be looking forward to? Well I, I think um, I, I think you raised a good point about the professional language. And I think what I'm trying to say I'm not trying to say that um, every anything goes at any point in time. What I'm trying to say is that there is a time and place for different types of language, and professionally, you need to learn how to, just like you need to dress for work, you need to know how to speak for work. Uh, but I think it's a, a mistake to think we speak like that all the time. Um, I also think that there's things that go by the wayside that we don't even realize. So nobody actually says whom anymore, or very few people do say whom, and nobody really worries about it. Uh, nobody really worries about you know the fact that we don't say dost and that we don't say dos and things like that. And those things disappear and wither and, and all these kinds of words that sound very old-fashioned to us. You know, probably if I had been sitting up here uh, 50 years ago, we would be complaining about those things, or maybe a little longer than 50 years ago. But we'd be complaining about very different things. And I think that, you know, the probably cliche, but the only constant is change is that it's, it's always changing, right? And so it's going to be the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, every new generation that comes in adds their own things, and they remove some things, and that's just what happens. So um, 
English has been going on a really long time. There is no sign of it letting up. <laughs> we are actually taking over the world. If anything, more people are switching to English. I mean, all these, how many people have we talked to here uh, who say that their second language was English, but now that's their language of, of use mo mo most of the time. So I think there's really no chance. No worries about it dying out. It may not be in the same kind of form that we liked when we spoke it when we were 20, but oh well. Neither is the music. <laughs> <laughs> My name is uh, Graham Greenlee. I've always been of the opinion that uh, a sort of dialect that we hear in LDS people from Southern Alberta sounded a lot like the dialect, dialect you hear from people who live in the southern states. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that this was probably something they, they brought with them when they came first came to Canada because I, uh, that's where they first came from, and they came into Alberta. And I was wondering if that's just something that, that they have retained over the years that they have been living here. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and I'm trying to work with some people in Utah uh, uh, regarding that. Now, there's a couple of things in Utah that they do that they don't do here. So there's some evidence to say that it's not the same language as what it was there. Um, but it's not clear exactly whether or not it's you know, that same dialect. I think probably what happens is, it's like what you're saying, it is they've maintained these features in their own dialect, but they're also resisting um, changes from elsewhere. Because when you look at it, I mean, these are people who were born and raised here, they, they didn't actually come from anywhere else, but they're still maintaining these differences. Um, if you look at, I mean, most of the people I've heard from here who came from other dialects or languages, they all speak, you're all speaking English the way everyone else does, right? And I don't think I even heard any accents from those of you who, who, uh, who learned it as a second language. Um, so you were part of this sort of mainstream, uh, and so you're picking up those things. But if you are, if you have a very tight social network and you are not mixing in, in important ways with everyone else, then you would probably maintain your own language in a different way. I think this is the same case with um, other different, different groups too. I mean, there's some evidence to show that uh, Jews in New York City have a different kind of dialect. Uh, different groups, uh, whether it be eth eth ethnic, you know, Italians in in Toronto or Montreal or New York, they have a different way of speaking. So it's ethnic or it's religious. They're kind of all intertwined, right? Yeah. I'm Desmond Lavistone. I are an American, and uh, I eat just not it. <laughs> but I'm also Canadian. When I first came here, and uh, you still hear it, I do the uptick at the end of sentences. So I would say something that I thought was pretty profound, and people would answer me as if it were a question. <laughs> I was stunned. <laughs> well, I mean, it still happens, but at least now I know what's happening because of the uptick. Um, when you were talking, I was really worried about your students, that perhaps you wouldn't be correcting their grammar in the essays, but uh, now that I see that you've added the caveat about time and place and appropriateness. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> but my question is, I have friends who are teachers who uh, use the accusative in the subject of the sentence, so her and me went shopping, and, and then they use the nominative after the preposition, you know, like, um, we were going, we were going to, uh, to, uh, to she or something like that. I mean, it wouldn't be that bad. But, but they, they mix up the nominative and the accusative, and I think they have no idea. And what really irks me is that they're teachers, and I think, 
Ooh, OMG, like, uh, what, <laughs> what are they doing to the next generation? So I've been reluctant to say anything, but um, I can feel my jaws getting uh, temporal ventricular joint syndrome uh, from grinding every time this happens. So I'm wondering, from your point of view, um, what is our role? What is our role, we, we uh, middle-aged and old conservatives who are trying to maintain the language? Who is a conservative? quotes. What is our role? Like, can we go around chastising people that we think should be speaking better? Well... I mean, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> However, um, I think you have to one. You have to think about why you're doing it and what you want to get, what you want to accomplish by doing that. If you really want someone, if you want to teach someone something, probably just correcting them and correcting their grammar isn't going to work. There again, have been studies showing shown that that doesn't actually help. Um, I think that if you can go about it personally in in the way that this is the way you speak. If you want to be taken seriously in a professional setting, and to put it that way, um, then I think that's that makes sense because that's good advice. Actually, <laughs> that's really good advice. Um, people are going to think better of you if you do this, right? Um, that doesn't mean what they're. I think there's a difference between you and that and correcting them because they're wrong. Because they're not actually wrong when they're saying that. If you, I mean, everyone in this area talks like that, and so they are speaking. They got it from somewhere. They didn't. Get, you know, they're getting it. They're not making it up. They're saying it because that's what other people say. And so everyone's doing the same thing. I think if you want, for upwardly mobile people who want to leave and go somewhere else, that the way they will be needing to speak or the way they will learn to speak will be very different than the people who stay. And that is really, that's a very common thing. If you, have, are you, if you live in the same town your whole life and you don't travel much, you, there's no reason. Why would you need to learn to speak in a different way? Who cares? Like, you're just going to sound void, like, like uppity, right? You're just going to sound like, oh, you're from the big city and you think you're better than us. That's what you're going to sound like. Uh, and so it's not actually always good to speak better. Sometimes that actually is, it goes against you. So I think that if you can approach it in the way that this is, you know, this is an upper mobile thing, that's a different story than just saying you're wrong. Beth uh, Trainer, uh, I want to ask a rather uh, historical question, really. Uh, and wonder if you have perhaps studied this, but historically, when you had monks and you had various religious groups, some of them still practicing here in Alberta today, where they do, uh, well, I think of chanting, for example, with the monks, and I think of chanting when you're studying uh, Bible pieces. Was that partly, or could it have been partly, a way of preserving their language? That's a good observation. I don't know if it's deliberate. It certainly is a way that preserves language. It absolutely does. Um, and there's been some um, research showing that just preacher style in general is different than other speaking styles. Right? I mean, and, and even different than regular oratory styles. I mean, when I talk to you in front of when we're talking in front of a microphone, we're speaking differently than if we're not in front of a microphone. But even so, I mean, there's again, there's a group of people looking at LDS, there's people looking at, um, at Jewish uh, rabbis and things like that, and certainly they have all the chance. I think they do preserve language. I don't know if it's really, I don't know if it was a goal. I'm not sure if it was a goal. I think in the case of Hebrew, it was, because 
at least a certain point in time, I can't remember the names of this particular group, but they wanted the language to always sound the way it did when they were speaking it, and so they specifically wrote into, into the Torah um, all the little, all the inflections that were necessary for them to speak it exactly that way. So that definitely happened with, with Hebrew. Uh, I can't speak about, I don't know about the other languages. So the, the, the uh, follow-up with that for me is, should we be teaching more memory work and poetry and that kind of thing in schools? Well, it depends, again, on your, goal. You want if your goal is that you want to preserve the language um, the way it was spoken before. <laughs> but if we want kids to actually speak their own language, <laughs> then we might not want to do that. Or, or if we want to have them access to both, then why not do both? I'm, I'm a big believer that everyone should do everything, but, okay. uh, yeah. Thank you. This should be so ready. Are you absolutely necessary? I'll ask a few questions already. Okay, you're the last one. Okay. Oh, okay. One of my problems are that uh, I don't hear very good, so that's why I have a little bit of trouble with uh, new types of languages. Uh, anyway, uh, my question is actually more, uh, what about social media, TV, electronic devices? How does that affect the change in language? So I, I think there's some evidence that it changes the trendy things. I don't know that it changes things on a long-term basis. Um, when you uh, watch television or listen to the radio, you are, you're passive. You're not actually communicating with the television. I mean, you might be swearing at a talkie game or something, but you're not actually uh, communicating with anyone. And there's good evidence to show that you don't learn language from things that you're just listening to, uh, that you need to speak with someone. Children don't learn language by if you put a tape recorder in the room with them, right? They learn it only by speaking with them. And so I think that there's a limited, there is an influence, but it's limited, is what I mean. Thank you for a... Is, is it off? Oh, yes, sorry, it's, it's me. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. Um, thank you for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. And I was wondering about using linguistics in tracing migration patterns uh, from various areas. And, and, and I have a personal experience about this in that I was at a party a number of years ago, and one of the fellows there said, Did you come from Kansas? And I was born and brought up in Alberta. But my father came from Kansas when he was seven years old. And apparently, he picked up some of that, that accent in, in my speech. And I wondered about using this in my, tracing migration patterns. Um, that's interesting that you were, that he could trace that. Sometimes, I would say, on the whole, Kids don't sound as much like their parents as their parents would like them to sound. <laughs> so, um, if you look at, I mean, look at any first generation. Um, their parents might speak with an accent, but the children don't, right? Kids learn from their peer groups far more than they learn from their parents. I'm sorry to say. I am also a parent, so I'm sorry to hear this <laughs> to say this. But um, so they really do listen. Um, the bulk of what you learn as a child is from your peer group. You know, once you go to school and you have, uh, you have um, more people around you, of course, it's not the same thing when you're before five years old. Um, that said, there's always little things that can just stick through with people, and it kind of depends on, it depends a lot on the person. So the problem with tracking, I think tracking migration can be done 
at a macro level, I would say. So people do that by looking at, uh, they trace um, where people came from England and where they settled, if they settled in you know, Pittsburgh or if they settled wherever along the coast or in Newfoundland and things like that. And you can tra trace things like that, um, but it's usually at a, a, at a, at a uh, larger level than the individual, usually. That doesn't mean you, you know, that you have a perfect example of, of, a, of a sort of anomalous thing, but it does happen that people just maintain. They just keep something that they learned when they were growing up. Let us thank uh, Nicole Rosen, the And let us also wish for Godspeed in Manitoba. It's a wonderful province. Second to Alberta. Yeah. <laughs>